Welcome to the 12th podcast in the UNSW Canberra series, Navigating Uncertainty, on the topic of why biodiversity loss is a growing risk for business. In such tumultuous and unpredictable times, we believe that careful work in the humanities and social sciences can shed light on many of our current challenges and help us to chart ways forward. Today's podcast is sponsored by the Environment and Governance Research Group based at UNSW Canberra. This podcast has been recorded on the lands of the Ngunnawal people, the traditional custodians of the Canberra region. I am on Yuan country, joining via Zoom. We acknowledge the elders past and present and that sovereignty has never been ceded. I am Dr Katie Moon at the School of Business UNSW Canberra and it's my pleasure to host today's conversation. Our guest today is Dr Megan Evans, who is a research fellow and lecturer also at the School of Business at UNSW Canberra. Welcome, Megan. Your current research is looking into the growing role of businesses and financial institutions in biodiversity conservation. Can you first give us some background into what the current state and trends are for biodiversity and maybe explain what biodiversity is for those who might be unfamiliar? Yeah, sure, Katie. Thanks so much. So when I refer to biodiversity, I broadly mean the natural living world. So the total diversity of species, ecosystems and genes, plants and animals, forests, wetlands, coral reefs. And these are all things that have their own intrinsic values, but also perform lots of essential functions for us. So for example, clean air, water, food, protection of has or protection from hazards like cyclones and storms. Now I think we've grown pretty accustomed to some fairly dire warnings about the state of the environment um, and its ongoing degradation and the fact that we're in the midst of a human-caused six-mass extinction event. So I'm not going to dwell on this, but I do want to just briefly highlight a couple of um, major reports that may have um, uh, slipped past your radar um, in, the, in the past year. Mm-hmm. So the first... Um, was actually in 2019, but it was by the Intergovernmental Science Policy Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services. So IPBES is the acronym. And that's an independent intergovernmental body which provides scientific assessments about the state of global biodiversity. And it's basically like the the IPCC for biodiversity and involves thousands of scientists and researchers all around the world. And when they... uh, collated all this evidence, they found that about 25% of assessed plants and animal species are threatened with extinction, and around 1 million species are likely to go extinct within decades, and these trends of decline are getting worse. The second uh, major report was the fifth Global Biodiversity Outlook Report, which is the final report card on progress made against the 20 global biodiversity targets agreed in 2010. And this was under the International Convention on Biological Diversity. And there's about uh, 100 or so parties to this uh, international convention and uh, Australia has been party to the convention since 1993. And what this Global Biodiversity Outlook report found was that not only none of these targets that aim to prevent or or slow species extinctions were were entirely met, but that um, in order to reverse or slow these trends, transformative changes in human societies was needed. So total transformation of our food systems, our energy systems, our financial systems. And that's needed if if we are to be able to live sustainably with the natural systems that support us into the future. So just, you know, something minor, total system change (laughs) is is necessary. 
Um, yeah. Okay. So obviously biodiversity loss is a global problem and global society is responsible, but it's a bit more complex than that, isn't it? Because we know that different collectives of people and organisations have different responsibilities and contributions to the problem. In my own work, for example, on private land conservation, we know that inequalities arise when different actors have different rights and responsibilities. So, for instance, if a private landholder puts a conservation covenant on their property to protect biodiversity, the government still retains the rights to the subsurface minerals, such as coal, gas and metals. So mining leases and licences can be permitted in areas over which a covenant has been applied, which threatens the conservation of biodiversity. Sure. And that, that's a good example of some of the inconsistencies and 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 conflicts that arise in this really complex space with the environment where we've got heaps of different actors with all different kinds of interests in, in the particular parts of the environment. Um, there's a whole range of different values being held by different uh, institutions and governments and people and organisations about uh, which parts of the environment are important for what reason. Um, and then with, with governments, uh, when we're thinking about governments are typically there and have historically been there in, in the past to act on protecting the environment on our behalf. So, for example, in Australia and many other countries, we've got laws and policies that are designed to protect or, or limit the destruction of the environment. And, you know, for example, going back to the Convention on Biological Diversity, this is a you know, the international um, forum in which countries come together to try to negotiate and um, come up with ways to um, uh, collectively improve uh, environmental outcomes uh, at a global level. Sure. You said above that the um, globally biodiversity is declining. So that process hasn't really been working then, has it? Well, yeah, no, I guess so. <laughs> um, so... Yeah, I mean, the, the, as I said, that the CBD has been about since since 1993. Um, we're now in 2020. Um, uh, we've just, uh, you know, the, the Global Outlook report concluded that, well, all the targets that we set 10 years ago haven't been met. They're about to, or that the parties, the convention, are, that were going to come together this year, but obviously things have been put on hold this year, they're going to come together next year and say, okay, what targets are we going to commit to now? Um, and it does feel a little bit like Groundhog Day in that we're just setting targets and collectively failing. So um, generally speaking, governments on our behalf have collectively failed to take enough action that substantially slows or, or reverses these global trends of biodiversity loss. And that's not to say that conservation isn't effective or that everything is pointless. It's just that um, we know that conservation does work when there's real action and real money put on the table. So there is good evidence of that. For example, there was a paper uh, in Nature in 2017 by um, Anthony Waldron and colleagues that found that conservation investment had reduced biodiversity loss by about uh, 30%. Uh, in each country on average uh, between 1996 and 2008. But then obviously as human pressures grow, more money is needed to counter the degradation that comes from human activities. Yeah, right. So it's money, it's how we grow our food, it's the energy we use and perhaps political will. What about vested interests? 
Yeah, that's a good question. And there are a lot of businesses uh, and corporations who, including those who, who do have disproportionate influence on uh, government decisions, who do still, um, uh, you know, make their business upon the the uh, extraction of resources from from the environment and generally activities that are, that have quite uh, negative impacts on biodiversity. Um, I'm actually thinking of uh, a podcast that was uh, earlier in the Navigating Uncertainty series uh, at UNSW Canberra, where Dr. Lindy Edwards talked about how the concentration of corporate power in Australia's economy and elsewhere is having a fairly profound impact on our democracy. Um, and she talked about how those with a lot of economic power are increasingly influencing political systems to the benefit of these vested interests, but to the detriment of uh, the public and other collective public goods that, that governments are, are meant to represent. And the relevance of, of that to today's topic on biodiversity is that even though governments that are traditionally meant to invest in things like environmental protection that support the public good, because of this, or at least partly because of this increased concentration of economic and political power, it's potentially becoming even more difficult for, for governments to act in the public interest and, and invest in conservation. Yeah, they're good points. And, and that podcast episode that you mentioned, number four, is, is actually a really good one. And I would encourage listeners to go back and have a listen to that one. Uh, and those concerns are actually also something that I've spent quite a bit of time thinking about uh, in relation to how we actually identify and then ascribe responsibility for different parts of the environment. So uh, I actually worked with a, a number of colleagues and we published some work in conservation letters where we explained that we, we actually need to formally recognise the responsibilities that accompany different rights so that we can, you know, essentially set the baseline of what society should be able to expect from these different actors, including corporations and governments. And yet often we fail to actually identify quite specifically who has responsibilities and for what. So given that many of these challenges um, sort of are persisting, do we give up on governments taking responsibility or do, do we have to do the work ourselves? Well, yeah, I mean, I don't think we can give up on governments at all. And I, and I will um, touch on that a bit more later. What I do want to talk about a bit today is this emerging trend in the private sector where biodiversity loss is being considered a, a serious financial risk and where some businesses and investors are actually actively changing their strategies to better work with rather than against the environment. Hmm. So could you tell me a bit more about this? I mean, I'm aware of some commitments being made by investors and businesses around climate change action, but not so much about biodiversity conservation. Yeah, sure. So there's been uh, a lot of, uh, well, a bit of discussion about uh, biodiversity loss or, or so-called nature-related financial risks. Um, and that's largely been inspired by what's been happening around um, work on climate change uh, related financial risks. So mm. I'll give you a couple of examples. Right. First, um, there's the what's called the Task Force on Climate Related Financial Disclosures. And that was created in 2015 by the financial sector itself. And what the TFCD aims to do is come up with consistent reporting frameworks that allow companies and banks and investors to provide information on their activities to various stakeholders and, and how exposed they are to different climate-related risks. 
And the idea behind that is that this information will help uh, company boards and directors to direct their investments away from assets and activities that are contributing to climate change and are uh, now actually um, financial liabilities. So, for example, the insurance company Suncorp is on record as saying that global warming poses an existential threat to the insurance sector. And that's because the, uh, the more and more that Suncorp and other financial institutions invest in things like coal and gas, more greenhouse gases are released, climate change worsens, this creates more extreme weather events and disasters that become simply too costly and unpredictable um, and pervasive um, for insurance companies to really deal with. And the second example is in the Australian agricultural sector. So just a couple of months ago, the National Farmers Federation committed to a net zero carbon target by 2050. And this is partly in recognition of the fact that investors are being much more cautious with where they direct their money, but also because climate change is already having massive impacts on agriculture and major action is needed to avoid um, the, the worst predicted impacts in the future. Okay. So is this something that companies are likely to sort of work towards realising or is it just, is it just talk? Well, it's a good question. It's Sometimes it is a little bit hard to, to tell um, whether there's talk or whether there is actual action. There, there has been um, a lot of talk, but there is starting to be uh, some money being put on the table. So, for example, um, there are a lot of banks and insurance companies that are actively divesting from coal assets um, because in the future they are going to – they are – being regarded increasingly as stranded assets, according to the work that, that Oxford University has done. And Australian National Bank, ANZ, was the last bank to commit to net zero investments by 2050. And that was just a couple of weeks ago. And um, just recently, HSBC Bank uh, committed to a joint venture with the firm Pollination, which is looking to invest about $3 billion into projects that uh, help to mitigate climate change and invest in the environment. Yeah, look, Megan, that sounds like a lot of money, but how much money is that exactly? Yeah, it's it's hard for me personally to to think about how much money that actually is because it's just you know millions, trillions, bazillions of dollars. Um, so if we think about that that three billion that HSBC has committed to invest in in projects. Um, going back to some of the latest science that um, Brendan Wintle and colleagues did a, a couple of years ago, they um, did some work and um, estimated how much money would it cost to recover all of Australia's threatened species. Um, and when we think about Australia and threatened species, we have a lot of them, uh, partly mm -hmm. because Australia is highly biodiverse, it's a mega diverse country, but also we've got a pretty awful extinction record. So we've actually got about 1,700 individual species wow. um, on our federal environmental legislation. So um, 1,700, that's just ones that have made it onto that list, that have gone through the scientific policy bureaucratic hoops to get onto uh, this national environmental legislation. Mm -hmm. And what uh, Brendan and colleagues found was that for about $1.7 billion annually, those 1,700 species could be recovered in that going from a trajectory of decline to 
a positive trajectory of recovery. So 1.7 billion annually is needed mm. to protect just those species in Australia. Mm. Now, think about in comparison, Australians spend about $13 billion a year on pet food. Right. Now, that's not you know, a particularly fair comparison. It's just, you know, I love my pets as well. I <laughs> spend lots of money on their best quality food. It's not, you know, a fair comparison, but it's just to give you some context, you know, mm-hmm. 1.7 billion is needed to recover 1,700 species um, on an annual basis. 13 billion annually is spent on feeding our doggos and, and cattos. Um Compare again to the current annual budget of our federal environment department, which is $900 million a year. Nice. Um, that's that's $900 million that's spent not just on – that's only a small amount of that is actually going actively towards recovering species. And bear in mind that that federal environment department has – Uh, the budget has been cut by about 40% since 2013. Mm So, 3 billion a year is, well, 3 billion is the HSBC commitment, 1.7 billion a year is what's needed to recover threatened species, 13 billion a year on pet food, Um, about a billion is spent uh, on the environment department. Put all of that into context with a report that came out that uh, a few months ago that Nature Conservancy commissioned uh, where they estimated globally how much money is actually needed to effectively protect nature. Mm-hmm. So they argued that to reverse the decline in biodiversity globally by 2030, we need to be, we collectively as a society, we need to be spending US about 722 to 967 billion per year. Wow. Okay. Um, and they found out of that, that's what is needed based on their, their estimates. At the moment, we're only spending a very, very small fraction of that and they found that what they call the nature funding gap or the amount of money that is needed to actually get to that aspirational well not aspirational but actual goal is you know close to 820 billion per year so that's the additional amount of money globally we collectively need to be spending to really look after nature and ourselves mm-hmm they're pretty frightening figures, Megan. What sorts of things are actually happening to try to close that gap, if anything? Yeah, it's a good question. And there is now a lot of discussion um, about um, raising funding and, and stimulating investment and um, leveraging investment from the private sector to invest in biodiversity and natural capital. So when I say natural capital, that's just a kind of slightly jargonistic term to describe things like soil and forests and clean air and water and the like. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that's happened is I was talking about the the task force on climate-related financial disclosures before. In July this year, there was a collection of environmental NGOs and uh, banks and, and investors that established the task force on nature-related financial disclosures. And this is to develop a, a new corporate reporting framework for biodiversity loss. Yeah, great. So, I mean, this is sounding a bit like as long as there's good information out there, rational decisions we made, but 
Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think we both know that people don't always act according to either the evidence or, or even rationally. So is this view of kind of financial disclosures being established across different sectors of the, the sort of environmental field relating to nature and climate, is this a bit, bit of an naive view to think that this is going to sort of help sort of reverse the trajectory in a meaningful way? Yeah, I, I do. I do share your your scepticism. On on one hand, I'm yes, I I concur. I I I am not going to completely put all of my eggs in the basket of oh thank goodness they've come up with a committee, and they've got a framework. Everything will be okay now. So I'm 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 not not suggesting that. At the same time, I am still kind of can't help but be a little bit excited by the fact that you are now seeing those in, I guess, um, those who I suppose suppose we've traditionally seen as the baddies in terms of corporations (laughs) and businesses actually coming together and saying, oh no, this is actually, you know, environmental degradation and biodiversity loss is actually going to harm our businesses. We Mm. need to do Mm. something about it. But I still think it is pretty cool that you're getting this uh, movement coming from within the sector. It's not government coming in and saying, you know, bashing the sector on their head saying, you need to do this to, you you need to stop doing these activities that are harming the environment or else we'll fine you. It's the the sector itself coming together and and forming a solution, well, starting to form solutions um, and, and frameworks that will help them to make decisions, um, uh, you know, to, to, I guess, direct their investments and activities in a way that is uh, less environmentally harmful. So one, one good thing is that the private sector can generally do things quicker than government. So that is a little bit of a cliche sometimes in terms of government slow and private sector fast, but private sector can do things generally quicker and can do things in a more innovative ways rather than, you know, the same kind of approaches that governments get used to. You know, businesses are there because they innovate and they come up with new solutions. Um, so that, that there's, there's, I guess, a chance that uh, a private sector-led approach could end up being more effective and efficient than one that is being um, required or demanded by government. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is that these voluntary reporting frameworks, so like the task force on climate-related uh, financial disclosures and, and the, the nature-related one, they can sometimes end up informing and influencing uh, government policy. So, for example, um, a couple of months ago, New Zealand uh, effectively adopted the um, TCFD as the basis for the world's first mandatory climate risk reporting uh, framework. Um so that's 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 really exciting and I think it's I think we also need to step back and just think well it's pretty remarkable when we have the finance sector the agricultural sector and environmental sector all actually coming together largely singing from the same song sheet and trying to solve um, biodiversity loss and climate change. You're right that is actually really exciting You've, you've pointed out a couple of important sort of aspects there of, of how we sort of see this working together. Are, are there other things that we need to be aware of as we sort of move into this space, I guess, in, in the lead up to some of the, the commitments that we're, we're looking at at uh, sort of 2030 and, and even out to 2050? Yeah, so while on one hand this is all 
exciting, potentially exciting. Um, I think uh, we collectively, as 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 people, as well as 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 researchers, and particularly environmental or conservation researchers. We need to be really careful about jumping on bandwagons and getting excited by fads, um, for example. So you and I have both worked on market-based instruments for conservation, mm-hmm. right? So things like environmental offsets, but, um, carbon offsets, RED, so reducing emissions from forest degradation and deforestation. And we've both done work over the last 10, 15 years that show that generally speaking, there's mixed results, shall we say, in terms of how effective these um, policy instruments that rely on changing people's behaviour through economic incentives, how well they actually work. Um, Mm -hmm. And we're still, uh, we still haven't actually cracked that nut in terms of how to actually make these environmental offset or carbon offset schemes work effectively. Yeah, and um, particularly with, with long-term outcomes in mind. So not just the, for the duration of the program, but how do we get these to become more of a, a sort of a way of being or doing more permanently? Precisely. And, um, you know, you and I both look at this the, these problems. We, we tend to look at these problems more from a policy and governance perspective and from a, a people and social perspective, whereas there is um, a bit of a tendency, I think, to... Uh, get really excited about counting stuff mm-hmm. and I'm not I'm really not trying to be disparaging to people who like counting things I like counting things um, I, I, I do believe it or not have a maths degree somewhere back <laughs> in the day I'm pretty sure it's been expunged from my mind but I do count things um, but I think counting things and coming up with metrics and and ways of quantifying biodiversity so we can trade it that's just one really small piece of the puzzle. And we need to um, think about the broader system and think about, okay, well, what does that metric mean? How are people going to use it? How are people going to potentially misuse it? Um, What kind of um, uh, standards or or mechanisms are in place to ensure that they play by the rules or at least... um, uh, any kind of misbehaviour is is minimised so that we do actually get these outcomes that we actually want from mm-hmm. from these schemes. So, so that's you know my my I, I'm cautiously optimistic, I suppose, about this um, this uh, emerging trend about private sector led approaches. Bearing in mind that that the last wave of market-based instruments and and economic incentives about the environment, offsets and the like, that was all driven by government. Um, And and now we're starting to see a wave of um, activity that is being driven by the private sector and those who typically have been in the past regulated by government. So I think the fact that... you, you. kind of you're getting a, a, a potential solution that is being formed by, I suppose, those who are responsible largely for environmental degradation is interesting and exciting, but clearly uh, we do need to keep an eye on that. Um, we, you know, you can't entirely trust, um, well, th- there's a trust issue, right? We need mm-hmm. to, as the public, trust and, and feel um, assured that what, the, the, 
the instruments and the mechanisms that are emerging to try to solve this problem are actually uh, happening and they are actually doing something and it's not just greenwash. Yeah, I mean, that kind of leads into some of the work that I've been doing, which is actually starting to try to isolate these different types of mechanisms that might be available to empower beneficiaries to, to essentially hold different actors to, to account. So something like the public trust doctrine. Um, so that's where citizens are using this legal mechanism, which is actually a Roman law concept um, that, that kind of says that the air, running water and the sea and its shores are things that are common to all people uh, and they should be protected by governments on behalf of the people. And so citizens are using this doctrine um, and have been successful in doing so to show that the government is the trustee, for example, of the climate system, the atmosphere, um, and that they're not discharging what's called their fiduciary duty. So that's the duty of the trustee uh, in terms of managing the atmosphere on behalf of current and future generations. So is it a case, do you think, that we need to not only consider what it is that governments and the private sector are doing, but also what mechanisms are available to the public to ensure that different actors are held to account or, or made responsible for the choices that they make or that they don't make? Yeah, absolutely. And and honestly, that's that's not an area that I'm super familiar with. It's very much more your area, Katie, in terms mm-hmm. of... Um, uh, it's something that I'm curious about because at the end of the day, it comes down to, okay, what what can we actually do? Um, yes. Sometimes it can feel a bit helpless and a bit hopeless in terms of, well, what can we do um, as we as, as a citizen, we as, as researchers, um, uh, what can we actually, what power do we have to, to influence um, this system? Are there any specific things that that we sort of need to be really mindful or aware of as we move in this direction towards uh, sort of private sector investment in biodiversity conservation? There are. And um, I I mentioned right back at the beginning of the podcast, I mentioned we were talking about the role of government and whether there's, you know, whether there's still role for government in, in this in this situation, and absolutely, I, th- I think there is. And um, the report I mentioned earlier from the Nature Conservancy, where they estimated the nature funding gap, one of their main arguments is that in order to leverage and and, and uh, get this additional private sector investment that we need to um, properly invest in nature, government funding has to increase. Right. So this isn't. Uh, this this uh, increased role for the private sector in biodiversity conservation isn't uh, an excuse or a reason for governments to step away from their responsibilities. So I think that is hugely important because as we've seen, for example, just as the, the example of the Environment Department at the federal level in Australia, government funding has dropped you know substantially over the last several years. There is this trend towards governments stepping away from their investments and responsibilities. Um, But what we need to actually solve this problem is everyone stepping up. And if we actually want this additional private sector investment to flow, then governments do need to still be a, a really key player at the table and step up its investment, as well as potentially changing its role slightly. So rather than being focused on as, as being a regulator, being more of a market enabler and a mm-hmm. coordinator of, of diverse efforts and actors. So 
one of the, 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 the risks and the worries that I, I have is that we do have heaps of different private actors interested in wanting to do stuff in this area. They're wanting to come up with frameworks and approaches and, and certification and, and labelling and, and things to, um, you know, I guess, get consumers to purchase their product or, or, or what have you. But a potential downside of all of that activity is that it, gets, it starts getting rather confused. Everyone is doing something different um, and then there's a, a loss of consistency and then it just, it just generally becomes confusing. So in addition to you know, maintaining and, and increasing total government investment in, in the environment, government also has a huge role to play in, in leading and, and coordinating and facilita facilitating and enabling this, this market activity so that we do um, more effectively and efficiently um, move towards these, um, these things that need to happen in order to properly protect um, the environment. Another thing that I want to mention is that we need to also need to recognise that there are risks associated with this marketisation and economic framing on on people's behaviours and motiv and motivate motivations. So, you know how people interact with each other and and ultimately the outcomes for people and the environment. So things like um, uh, fairness and equity and justice, those, those critical things risk being overlooked when uh, success is, is only really being determined by um, high level kind of easy to measure things like amount of area being protected or, or, or how quickly um, benefits accrue. Um, in terms of, you know, we're going to get more um, uh, carbon abatement outcomes from investing in monocultures rather than investing in slightly slower growing um, environmental or native uh, mixture of native species. One uh, is, is quicker and gets, you know, better financial returns um, in a short time, but the other has, you know, biodiversity co-benefits, soil co-benefits, all these other things that aren't captured if we don't account for these kind of slightly more complex and nuanced um, issues that, that are missed if we're only relying on, you know, tonnes of, of carbon emissions being stored, for example. Sure. Yeah. Gosh, a lot in there, Megan. So let me recap a little bit. So the private sector will act in its private interest. So we really need governments to sort of help with the setup and provide those frameworks to enable these markets to operate efficiently and, and equitably. We need to be seeing real benefits, not just something that can necessarily be measured quickly. Uh, and we also need to recognise that when we consider the environment in market terms, that can present a number of problems um, and so can operationalising different market uh, or other instruments. And so I guess, you know, the, the, the take home message from what you were talking there is that we need leadership and we need coordination and we need transparent systems uh, in which people can uh, participate and, and also observe. So essentially some sort of stewarding, uh, sort of stewardship role overseeing how, how we move in this direction towards better biodiversity outcomes through a combination of, of market, um, uh, sort of private, uh, private sectors, markets and, and governments. 
This has been a really fascinating um, chat, Megan, and I'm sorry that we have to wrap it up now, um, but I'm really excited to, to hear about the work that you're doing. And uh, it's obviously got some, some great benefits that we might be able to look forward to in the coming years. I hope Thanks so. so much. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us, Megan. And, um, and thank you also to our audience for your interest today. This was the 12th in the UNSW's Navigating Uncertainty podcast. Please join us in 2021 when our series resumes.